What do mission, ability, and disability have to do with each other? Ben Connor is Professor of Practical Theology and Director of the Graduate Certificate in Disability and Ministry at Western Theological Seminary. We sat down to talk about his new book, Disabling Mission, Enabling Witness, Exploring Mission Theology Through the Lens of Disability Studies. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Ben, thank you so much for talking to me today. Absolutely. Uh, So we're talking about your book, Disabling Mission, Enabling Witness. Early in the book, you state that people with disabilities could be considered the largest multicultural minority group. So can you break that down for us? What does that mean? I can. And and also an open minority group. There aren't a lot of minority groups that you could float in or out of. Mm -hmm. But... This is, if you if you take a minority group model for people with disabilities, I mean, what do people with disabilities have in common? You have someone that is either deaf, part of deaf culture, or hearing impaired, someone who has mobility challenges or is a wheelchair user, someone who has intellectual and developmental disabilities. You have me, who if I take my glasses off, have difficulty seeing and yeah, am not allowed to drive. Yeah. You have people that men- have mental health challenges. What what do these folks have in common? I mean, there's really nothing they have in common. What they have in common, according to this particular model, uh, which is a minority group model, is that they have a shared sense of oppression, that they're living in a world that's set up for a particular kind of person to succeed, and they face discrimination. They face uh, stigmatizing. They face uh, challenges where... Um, sometimes even if it's a level playing field, that's not enough for them to make their contribution. And so in that sense, it's a minority group. And and uh, disability doesn't care how much money you have. It doesn't care of your ethnicity or your race or gender or any of these things. So anyone can be in it. And it's a, it's a fluid category. You could be in it for longer or shorter periods of time. You could be born into the world of disability. You could have an accident or disease could bring you into disability. And you could be, in a sense, rehabilitated out of the world of disability. So from that standpoint, disability is the largest open minority group. Um, so what, how would you define disability itself? So then that's, that's the challenge is, I don't know that I would be able to define it without uh, setting up that kind of dichotomy I'm trying to push against. Mm. So that's why there's so many different models for disability. So on the one hand, there's a medical model of disability that says the disability is something that has to do with the person. And this can be overcome through uh, medicine or rehabilitation or something like that. It's a very personal biomedical view of disability. Your disability is a hurdle. Right. It's a hurdle and you need to be healed of it. Mm -hmm. And then you can be more integrated into society. So there are all sorts of systems and structures and institutions set up to help you overcome this particular disability. That's just one model, but it's a problematic model because it doesn't take into account the truly disabling features of having impairments. So an impairment is like I have difficulty seeing without glasses. I use a wheelchair because I have mobility issues. I don't. I'm just explaining for those who can't see me right now. So that's the impairment. But there's a disabling condition. It becomes a disabling condition when you're excluded from something, 
when you're excluded from participating in activities that would help you to flourish because of this condition. Because, that's more of a social model. Then. So that's a social model of disability. And some people said, oh, that's, that's, the, that's the new thing. That's, that was sort of the, that was the big find in, the, in the, probably the 80s, uh, late 70s, particularly going into the 80s. The social model was the new thing that everybody was excited about, particularly in Great Britain. And then it was challenged from within by a number of people. One prominent person was a gentleman named Tom Shakespeare, who has a kind of dysplasia or dwarfism, okay. so a restricted growth. And uh, he said, look, I have restricted growth, and it makes some things difficult for me. And, and also it, it results in some back pain and some neuropathy. And I don't experience neuropathy because of the way society's structured, or because somebody's mean to me or doesn't include me, yeah. that's just, that's an impairment effect that makes it so it's actually difficult for me to do things, even if there's a so-called level playing field. So you he's can get pointing me. out the physicality, <laughs> right? So you're embodied. Mm-hmm. So that's the point, I suppose, of all this is that there are all these different layers, but in the end, you're dealing with an embodied human being, and that disability perhaps should be looked at in terms of our human diversity, diversity is embodiment, diversity is in the way that we process information. And if we continue to have binaries of able, disabled, then we're going to perpetuate the kind of biases and exclusion that, that created this situation in the first place where someone's in, someone's out, someone will make a good citizen, someone won't make a good citizen, someone should be able to vote, someone shouldn't be able to vote. Yeah. All these were sustained by disability categories. Yeah. Which brings into question all the way that we value people and whether they're commodities or... So there's lots of stuff that goes into the way we talk about this. Right. You're approaching specifically from the angle of mission, in mission theology. Um, so can you talk about why that particular angle is so fascinating and important? Yeah. It, well, one, it hasn't really been done. There was a brief article by a scholar, a missiologist and churchman named Leslie Newbegin, mm-hmm entitled uh, Not Whole Without the Handicapped, which was a fine way to say it back then in the 70s, and it was cutting edge. But he didn't really even uh, tease out his own missiology, his own access to mission studies and mission theology, and apply it to this concept of disability, which Hmm. I think he could have done well. What I saw is that in in mission studies, the, the big move in mission studies was moving from looking at the sending culture and what the sending culture did to... Can you say what you mean by that real quick? Yeah, so that, so in mission, you, that something's being sent. Missionaries are being sent. A message is being sent. Resources are being sent. Mm-hmm. And, and in this process of sending one message across cultures to another, it was almost as if you're carting goods across a bridge, and then you leave the goods, and then something's done with the goods. But there's a dynamic process that goes on with the receiving culture, the indigenous culture, indigenous meaning growing out from the earth. So indigenous appropriation, that is how they receive the things that are given to them. Mm -hmm. And in that process, what happens is a group that previously is viewed oftentimes as maybe a backward civilization, certainly not a Western civilization, so when the gospel came across that bridge, it came with ideas of commerce. It came with ideas of culture. Mm. 
It, it was... Uh, some might call baggage, but others might baggage. consider it part of the gift. Some yeah. might call imperialism. Mm-hmm. So all these things were mixed up in the message, even with the best missionaries, it, mm-hmm. because we can't look at ourselves that way. We need the lenses of other people, and that's exactly what we got in indigenous appropriation. What we found were people who weren't necessarily empowered to do that sort of thing were now given a Bible in their own translation, and when they read that Bible, they saw that it didn't necessarily always match up with the activities of the folks who brought them the message. Okay. So they had an independent standard, which was to critique the missionaries who came, the senders. So there were a number of things that are work from a mission theology standpoint there. One is the process of indigenization. So um, that their conversion that was happening wasn't... Uh, becoming cultural apprentices to Western culture, Mm -hmm. but it was taking what was there in their culture and reorienting it towards Christ. That was happening in this indigenous appropriation. Another thing that that was happening um, was that there's this dynamic of the mission of God, this this doctrine of missio dei, which has become popular again. I guess it started in the late 50s, but really gained a lot of momentum in the late 80s again, that mission ultimately is God's mission, that it's not the initiative of the sending church or the evangelist, but uh, it's ultimately God's mission, and that mm-hmm. so as missionaries go, they should be expecting to see God at work already. Yeah. And so then there was some, some pride that God is already at work in our midst before these folks came and pointed out to us, and these are things we can draw on and build on. Yeah. So how does this relate to disability? Yeah, I was just going to ask. <laughs> so this is the turn. What you have is a marginalized people who were empowered by a process of recovering a theology in their own tongue, in their own language, by contextualizing it through the process of appropriation, indigenous appropriation, to recognizing God's already at work. And now when we apply this to people with disabilities, we see that... Um, this same thing can happen, that there can be, you can say deaf to the ways of God and have it be a positive phrase mm. because deaf has to do with a certain way of being in the world to people who've been oppressed over time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you can say, look, if you're deaf to the ways of God, it has to do with how you relate to people, how you communicate, how you have more embodied communication, how you set up space, mm-hmm. um, how you... Your hermeneutics, how you interpret certain passages of Scripture because of the way that you inhabit the world. And these things, you can use these missiological sort of categories to open up spaces where I believe uh, people with disabilities can flourish. So that's, that's sort of one big part. Yeah. Another one is with the theology of witness. When it comes to witness, what we're really doing is we're bearing the witness of another. We're bearing the witness of the Holy Spirit. And traditionally, when we've thought of evangelists or picture evangelists, we picture, well, to be honest, tall, handsome males with good voices. Mm-hmm. Who a sense of adventure or something. <laughs> right, yeah. And so we have this in mind of what, what will make an effective evangelist, and we start to, we start to look at these sort of very human gifts and capacities and abilities, then we forget that those aren't the most important features of an evangelist. It's this, it's bearing the witness of the Spirit. And there is no intellectual capacity, physical skill, 
our social skill that you need to bear the witness of the Spirit. So everyone can participate in this. So if we don't have the full contribution of all different embodiments, types of people in our congregation as part of that witness, then it really diminishes our capacity, or you could say it disables our capacity for bearing that witness. Let's go back a little bit. You brought up um, deafness or deaf to the to the ways of God. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there is a little bit of a struggle to decide whether or not to include deafness in this book, and you ultimately decided to include it. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us why that tension existed and how you landed where you did? Like this feeling that you had to talk about it. Well, the, the deaf, capital D, deaf, refers to people who are part of a, they see themselves as a linguistic minority. Mm-hmm. They're part of a culture that includes a certain kind of communication, which is sign language, but it also, like I said, has to do with where you went to school and and uh, how you enter space and what sort of activities you participate in. Mm-hmm. The way that you theologize, it, the same way you, you see when deaf people communicate on a sidewalk, you need a wide sidewalk because they're interacting with each other. They can't be straight. They need to see each other face to face. They need to interact, and it's more collaborative communication that involves all the gestures. And that's the same way the theology is done. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's that's deaf culture. There are also people who are deafened, so lowercase D, so they have hearing loss. They're hearing impaired, and that's a different kind of thing. One of them is is. Uh, one of them, they sort of see their own condition as a disabling condition that they would rather overcome mm-hmm. with hearing aids or something like that. Mm-hmm. One of them is completely happy and doesn't see deafness as a deficit at all, but sees it as just their way of being in the world. So when I asked someone, um, you know, when you think of heaven, what do you imagine? Will you be able to hear? And the answer comes back to me, I may be able to hear, but you'll also be deaf. Hmm. By which he didn't mean I wouldn't be able to hear, but that I'd be able to participate in the way of right. being and communicating. Right. He's in. right. Because there's something unique about their experience of the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And therefore, something unique about the way they theologize. Mm-hmm. So so if, if, if much of the community that is considered deaf in one way or another doesn't consider themselves to have a disability, who am I to say that? They're part of this disability world. But the reason I had to include them is that 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 deaf culture and that way of being in the world can enrich the church so much, I don't want to leave it out of the conversation. So I make this case for not including deafness, but then with the appreciation and and support of some deaf conversation partners who helped me frame that chapter Mm -hmm. in a way I thought was faithful to deaf theology, Mm -hmm. I went ahead and included it, but I did it in what I felt like was a deaf way of doing theology. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. So let's talk a little bit about otherness. So you state that people with intellectual disabilities, so we're shifting gears here a little bit, but especially if they have a profound intellectual disability, they've been deemed so other that it becomes difficult to imagine life together. Well, some of it has to do with how we, it's, it's, it's anxiety producing for ourselves as largely rational creatures. So you could even say it goes back to our theological anthropology and what a person is. Yeah. 
And often when we think of a person, we think of, uh, even, even theologically, we think of capacities given to us by God that help us to reflect God somehow. Mm-hmm. And we quickly default to capacity for abstraction, yeah. uh, rational thought, these yeah, Especially sorts of in things. the Reformed tradition, which is kind of... Word-centered. Heady and Yeah, it's very logocentric. Yeah. And you're talking about people aren't good with words. And so that's one challenge. The, the other challenge is even as we try to relate to God and project ourselves, which we do, toward mm-hmm. God to understand God better, um, even in the disability community, you have people like Nancy Eisland, who is one of the first people to, to write a disability theology, who wrote a book called The Disabled God, who had an image of God that was something like her, but she could imagine God in a sip-puff wheelchair, which is this kind of motorized wheelchair where someone operates it by just using their mouth. Mm -hmm. And she imagined herself in heaven with a bones and braces body because she's never known herself any other way. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, there's certain limitations to that, but the point is that she can imagine God somewhat like her. But and we could kind we could maybe imagine Jesus. I mean, we we can imagine Jesus with wounds and things like that. Mm-hmm. But we can't. No one talks about the intellectually disabled God. Yeah. And no one talks about Jesus in terms of intellectual disability. So it's just so. Uh, it's as if if I were that, then I wouldn't be able to really relate the way that I can because we're it's so unfamiliar. Yeah. So that's one of the challenges with the otherness. Um, of intellectual and developmental disability, particularly as it's more profound and less communicative. And if we don't take the time to be with people that have more profound intellectual and developmental disabilities, then we continue to objectify and not imagine. I mean, our imagination gets shrunk. We can't imagine any way that could possibly uh, respond to God or contribute to a community. And so some of that also has to do with our very individualistic approach to faith. So you could say that the, our, our modern enlightenment sort of goals are ableist. That is, they, they inhere certain values that automatically exclude people with disabilities. Yeah. Which leads us to be a really fragmented community of people. It does, yeah. Because in another, another Western goal, there's independence. Whereas that's not a biblical right vision for our life together, it's interdependence. That's not even a good vision of, of God. So this idea of growing up and making your own way, it's mm-hmm. not a biblical ideal or anything like that. It's a cultural ideal. Right. Um, so can you, can you share a story that might kind of um, crack open the way we think about otherness? I can. And that since you brought up intellectual and developmental disability as sort of the most other, let me do that. And this is a story that accounts for, uh, I would say, a great failure I had in ministry. But at the same time, it's one. Of, I think it's probably the most profound insight that I've had. That's been that's set the trajectory for both my writing and research. Okay. So I was at a camp with young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and one young man. It was his first time away from home for a long time. He's the guy who loves to read, has a great sense of humor, but we couldn't see any of that because he was weeping the whole time. And he has Down syndrome. He had a hard time understanding um, how long we were going to be there. He had a hard time 
being in a loud dorm room with other people, the only thing that seemed to comfort him was warmth. So he'd sit underneath a hot shower for a long time. We'd have to get him out and get him dressed to go to things. Mm-hmm. About halfway through this five-day camp, we were going to a large group meeting, and I couldn't find him, which is a confession in itself. Mm. And so I thought, well, where might where might he be? So as I'm trying to track him down, I find uh, a sort of a trail that led to where he was, and that trail was his shirt, mm. <laughs> his shoes, his socks, his mm-hmm. pants, his boxers, and then I found him in a hot tub, a hot, warm place where he was sort of comforted. So I, fortunately, I also found a towel, so I wrapped that around him. We got his clothes back on, and we got him back to the, to the dorm room, and I thought, okay, I'm a parent, four kids. I have some parenting skills that I can apply, so I'll try those. I also have been working in ministry with teens. At that point, it had been for over 10 years. So I had that experience. I'll draw on that experience. Also, I had a Master's of Divinity where I took pastoral care and counseling, and I learned how to be a non-anxious presence. <laughs> so I had that going for me. You have the theory, at least, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though I was very anxious. Yeah. And then I was a defense away from a dissertation where I was thinking about these things really deeply. And I applied all of that knowledge and all those skills to this situation, and he just cried harder. I was a complete and total failure. And now I was just about to cry, not out of any sympathy or empathy, but because I was just frustrated. Right. This kid's just going to cry and ruin a trip for everyone. Yeah. And Did you just a, want to fix the situation? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I was trying to do with all my tools. Yeah. Well, in walks a friend of mine. At the time, he's probably 17. He loves NASCAR. Anytime Virginia Tech plays a sport, I get a text from him telling me the score. That's where I went to college, and he's a big Virginia Tech fan as well. I suspect this friend does not have an MDiv, he and almost a PhD. He and doesn't. Ten years of ministry. Or a family. Or he, uh, he also has cerebral palsy. His mother was in a car accident when he was in the womb, and he was born with cerebral palsy. He had significant surgeries before the age of seven, and he has an intellectual disability. What he did was he came into the room and he saw that we weren't doing well and he came and sat next to his friend and he put his arm around him and this guy stopped crying. And I realized that all these skills that I had and all this experience isn't what was needed at that moment. What was needed was a particular gift of compassion and comfort that Craig had. Craig had a gift that the body of Christ needed. Yet he wasn't deeply involved in a church anywhere because his parents had felt excluded. And so I realized the body of Christ has cerebral palsy. The body of Christ has Down syndrome in this, in, on the earth as it is right now. And that unless Craig's and Bo's and Amanda's and, and Seth's are present, then we're missing out. For people who are really interested in the kind of uh, embodied community that you're talking about, what kind of words of encouragement or hope would you give to either pastors or Christian leaders who are really touched by these kinds of stories and this, this way of thinking about mission and theology and disability? If, if you start from the pulpit, talk about disability as an aspect of diversity instead of as a deficit. If when you say... Uh, stand for something, you say stand in body or in spirit. 
if when someone in church makes an odd noise because they're on the autism spectrum and people are wondering what to do, and you say, oh, well, that's just how John participates. And if for Advent, if you have a candle lighting, having someone up front with a disability doing it. If you have a reading, have someone with a disability doing it. These are all little ways that you normalize these differences. Uh, if you notice there aren't people with disabilities in your congregation, ask why. Because 20% of folks in the U.S. say they have some sort of disability, even though um, many of them are invisible disabilities. You may or may not be able to see that by looking around a congregation. Right. But I guarantee as you start talking about it and destigmatizing the idea of having a disability, then you'll find family members will say, oh, well, I have, you know, an uncle. I have a neighbor, someone. And then you're not going to figure it out at the beginning. Universal design is the idea that, um, and universal design and learning is the idea that you try to create something by thinking ahead so that the most people can use it the easiest. Mm -hmm. So a ramp is good for someone in a wheelchair, but it's also good for someone pushing a stroller. Mm -hmm. And uh, a buttoned open doors is good for someone using crutches. It's also good for someone carrying two bags of groceries. And we we can think through these same things in our churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can prepare all you want, uh, but until you have relationships with people, they're not going to use the yeah. the things you're setting up. If you build it, they will come is not true. Right. Uh, there has to be a kind of hospitality where you don't set up things and wait for people to come, but where you enter into the lives of other people. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. On our production and research team, we have Garrett Mostowski and Nee Otto Abrahams. Christy Holly works the creative design angle. From the whole team at Princeton Seminary, thanks for listening.